Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And welcome to Invested Podcast, where we're talking about how to get really, really rich investing like great and fabulous investors like Warren Buffett. But we do hope, as I have, that you you know get a sense of what's out there in this world of investing that I knew zero about, or next to zero, probably as much as anybody else knows, and had zero interest in, and I'll say that straight up. But it's becoming more interesting, Dad, and I'm getting into it. Well, one of the things that fascinates me is that the investing world is chock full of advisors, financial advisors, podcast advisors, um, SEC regulators, uh, man, I mean, just chock full educators in, in schools all over the country doing MBA programs, all of whom are continuing to push out this idea that the market is efficient, that you can't beat the market in the long run, that um, price and value are the same thing in the market, which is why you can't beat it. Um, and therefore, investing strategies, which are are hyped up to, to, you know, such as a podcast like this, where we're basically, are, they would be arguing we're hyping up the idea that you could actually go out on your own and beat the market is is a, a false, you know, we're, we're praying to a false God that it can't be done. Um, well, that, yeah, we're definitely not hyping it, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and, and that the people who do beat the market are anomalous and expected in a random system that there will be these lucky outliers like Warren Buffett and so on. And of course, as we've discussed, Buffett has come back and said, yeah, well, um, all the lucky outliers happen to be um, all in the same philosophy of investing that he attributes to Ben Graham and David Dodd back in the 30s, in which I attribute to Buffett and Munger um, themselves, which is this idea of investing when you should try to buy a $10 bill for $5. This, of course, is impossible, uh, according to virtually everyone who teaches this subject. Uh, well, not so much anymore, but pretty much everybody who teaches it, that there's a paradigm out there that says that just can't be true, that no one rational is going to sell a $10 bill for $5. And and if anything, people who are working with money and very smart people who graduated from Harvard are rational in their behavior. And yet, there's lots of evidence now coming out that you can do exactly that and that it's rational to do exactly that, to sell a $10 bill for $5, even though that makes no sense to an economist. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And that's why we're not hyping it, by the way. I'm starting to learn that there is actual evidence for the Buffett, Graham, Munger value investing philosophy. Well, I think you presented something really actually that I have not read in the literature. And that is the, the constraints put on the people who manage most of the money in the market um, are not factored into the eco economic theory. And uh, honestly, they're not even factored into the economic theory that says that efficient market hypothesis is wrong. They're, they're just, I've never read it. Have you? Sorry, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> that was one of those run-on sentences, what exactly, wasn't it? What exactly am, am I saying that you've never read in any of the literature? <laughs> well, you sort of, you sort of, you sort <laughs> because of. Because I would like the new theory to be credited to me. I think you could possible. actually do something As like this. I'm now deciding that I'm actually a genius economist <laughs> and I'm putting out all my ideas on this podcast. Well, the thing that you, you brought to the game here that I've never heard before is that 
these guys who are managing money and who are selling a $10 bill for $5 are not behaving irrationally. You're, you're suggesting they're behaving rationally because their incentives do not match the long-term incentives of the price of the pricing system in place. In other words, they, they exactly. It doesn't matter that if four or five years from now this this idea that this thing will be worth X turns out to be true, if it's going to be sold for Y, you know, half of X over and over and over again for the next three or four years, their incentives aren't going to last four years. They're going to be fired in one year, and so. If you have a lifetime of one year, your perception of value is extremely different than someone who has an infinite projection of time. And so That's you take, exactly a, right. take an investor like Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, who are looking at the long, long term, as in we buy stuff and never sell it, and therefore see no difference between buying a private company and a public, publicly traded company, um, the latter of which is easily sold and bought. Uh, the former is very difficult to sell once you own it. And so mm -hmm. if you're operating exactly as if everything's a private company and you're not going to sell it, you don't care about liquidity, you're operating in an entirely different paradigm than the people who manage money. They don't operate Absolutely. like that. And the thing that's so bizarre is that the Securities Exchange Commission, which is supposed to regulate all of this, has given has defaulted to the short-term advisor and has set the rules of advising based on those short-term rules. And it's crazy because they are regulating an industry that's supposed to be long-term by definition. It's the retirement money. It's supposed I mean, to be 30-year really. money. No, it's not. Nobody ever said anything's supposed to be anything. It's just a market. Well, consider what most of the money is in there for. Most of the money in the stock market is is little guy money and has been driven by the advent of uh, 401ks and Roth IRAs and IRAs and Keo plans. And all of this retirement money is, by definition, long-term money. Yeah, I mean, that's reality. But what you just said is that they're supposed to be regulating a market that's that's meant for long-term money. And that's just not accurate. I mean, just because the market is long-term money doesn't mean that it's meant for that originally. So the, just two different things. And I think that, you know, we could have a discussion about regulations and what they should be and whether or not they should reflect reality or reflect realities of a an ideal market, which I think is they're they're going for the latter. And regulations obviously produce both good and bad incentives and results that, uh, you know, can move markets in different ways. So I don't know, that's a whole other discussion about what the SEC is doing. But what I think I've been learning about from talking about investing, and, and that I keep on observing over and over when you talk about these um, sort of uh, discrepancies between what's actually happening with investors and with funds and with money managers and what people expect to happen. I mean, those two things are often so different and usually the, the, the answer comes back, well, it just makes no sense. But what I observe is that it actually makes a lot of sense when you look at what people actually do in response to their own incentives. And I think that's what's so interesting about coming at this field as an outsider. 
I find it really, really fascinating to, to learn. It's almost like learning about another planet. It's almost like landing on Mars and going, what's the Martian culture like? <laughs> and it's fun. It's cool. So what, so what we want to do today, what we've been teeing up for a few weeks now, is this book that we both read called Misbehaving by Richard Thaler, who is a behavioral economist. And what that means is that he's an economist who deals with the reality of what people actually do. And this is where, for me, the rubber meets the road with investing. I think this stuff is so interesting and it's such a, um, it's a growing field. I mean, it's really brand new essentially in you know, the long history of economics, behavioral economics has really just come out. People are really starting to only now connect psychology and economics. And so that's what this book is about. And what you and I want to discuss is how it affects what we actually do to have this knowledge. <laughs> so this book, um, Misbehaving, is an amazing overview of the sort of, I guess, the history, really, we could call it almost an overview history of the development of a new paradigm in yeah. uh, in the markets. And what's astonishing to me reading this, because I've been teaching um, rule one style investing, which is clearly in opposition to the idea of the efficient market, right? I mean, you yes. can't do the kind of investing I do that Warren Buffett does if the market's efficient. Then, in, in fact, we're all lucky monkeys. Um, but if the market is, if we are not just lucky, if if this strategy of investing is actually effective um, and can be applied by just normal people, then there's something wrong with the theory of the efficient market. The market just simply can't be efficient if you have rule one investors going out there and beating it. So what's astonishing to me about this book, it, it just kind of blew my mind, was that this process of changing the paradigm of efficient market has been underway since like really seriously since 1985. I mean, we're mm -hmm. talking almost 40 years. This group of sort of uh, warriors led by, uh, led in many ways by, Dr. Thaler was at uh, at Cornell for many, many years and then moved over to, to the University of Chicago. Um, so tip of the hat to Cornell. And he gave uh, or worked with papers being delivered by Danny Kahneman, who we talked about before, Amos, Amos Tversky, who in 2002 got no awarded the Nobel Prize. These guys gave a paper in a conference at the University of Chicago in 1985. And and Dr. Thaler was one of the people who defended their, their point of view. And that was the real seminal beginning of this kind of paradigm shift and holy Christmas talk about long, long time to to make headway today. We're talking almost 40 years, 38 years after that paper was delivered that pointed out without any question that there are these irrational. Uh, you, you don't like to say the word irrational, but these guys were pointing out that people behave irrationally all the time. That they will. Yeah, yeah. I think I think use their. I mean, I have my own opinion on that, but uh, you, yeah, their their words were that people behave irrationally, and that and it's important actually to use that word. I think because in that context back then, that was a revolutionary thing to say. That was a subversive thing to say in the field of economics at right, the time. Right. And and the and but to to put it in context, it was not just behaving irrationally because we all would know that people behave irrationally. 
It's that economists didn't think that people on the main, in particularly professionals, would behave irrationally when it comes to money, when it comes to finance. And so as this field started to develop, which showed that there were, I, I think as someone called it, animal spirits, right, or passion involved. Uh, it's a Keynesian. Keynes used that term to talk about this this human uh non-rational, anti-rational. Everyone keeps trying to come up with some other word for what people actually do. And he called it animal spirits, which yeah. became the term in economics for a very long time until uh, until lately now with the behavioral economists becoming more precise about it. But I kind of love that term, so the animal I. spirits of us all. And I, and I love that Keynes was this brilliant economist um, and who was, by the way, an incredibly successful investor back in the 1930s mm. um, and understood that you could find bargains in the market and did so repeatedly and was incredibly successful his whole life as an investor and applied what he recognized as fact in the market that people misprice things um, and into a theory that said they misprice things because of animal spirits, because of, you know, they get carried away. And it and in 1985, economists, uh, or rather psychologists who moved in the economic field and finance started to try to prove it in, in ways that their, their economic um, conspirators, co-conspirators in colleges would have to accept it. The people who were promoting efficient market hypothesis would have to accept these things as true rather than just anecdotal statements. And right, because before that, economists obviously didn't ignore that sometimes people make mistakes. I mean, that's where this term animal spirits came from. But they would always describe it as being an anomaly, as just being a side note or a footnote to what a truly across the board rational group of people would actually do. And importantly, they argued that these footnotes were, would cancel each other out. That because yeah, they, they were, were so small as to be insignificant, and they were random, and so you know you'd get one this one way and one this other way, but and in the main they just canceled each other out, and what you had left was no real impact, as you say, they were insignificant in the thesis that the price was the value, and that is a gigantic step. Remember that efficient market hypothesis says two very important things: number one, you can't beat the market, and number two, the price is always right. And mm -hmm. if those, and those two, two things feed off of each other, obviously. Right. They feed off of each other. And so there's a lot of work that's been done over the last 35, 40 years that has yet to make it into my world, into the world of financial advisors, right? In, into the SEC regulated world of these dozens of thousands of financial advisors who are out there building portfolios, who have built something called robo uh, and advisors, right? Mm -hmm. Automatons that are delivering to you the most efficient um, portfolio that you can mm -hmm. have all conducted completely through the use of efficient market hypothesis. And things that have now been absolutely disproven, including, which I didn't realize, so I read this book, the capital asset pricing model has come under such uh, violent objections and, and well-proven objections by behavioral economists that they've blown it up. Um, the capital asset pricing model we've talked about a couple of times is basically what's used to balance your portfolio. So when you go into a, an advisor like a robo-advisor and you answer three questions 
and say, I want more risk to get a higher return or I want less risk to get yeah. a lower return. Um, you are essentially landing in the capital asset pricing model and they will build you a portfolio that has, quote, more risk and a chance to get a higher return. And they found Those out it's complete nonsense. just blow my mind. I can't, I, it makes me so angry, those questions. Because how would I know if I want more risk or less risk? I just want a result. Yeah, I, I mean, want a return. It's insane to me, it, it those is. questions. And, and here's the thing that really boggles my mind. The concept of risk, as we've talked about numerous times in the podcast, is developed around this notion of beta, that is the the volatility of any one stock compared to the main group of stocks, the S&P 500, say, uh, tells you its risk. That is, if it moves around more than the S&P 500, it has more risk. If it moves twice as much as the S&P 500, then it has a beta of two. The S&P 500 has a beta of one. If it has no correlation to the S&P 500, it has a beta of zero. So mm -hmm. th they are able, they think, to produce a portfolio for you guys in the robo-advisor and JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley doing the same thing with their advisors, a portfolio that has more or less risk, meaning more beta or less beta in the overall portfolio. And this has been proven now. I didn't realize this, but in this book, he, he basically shows that beta is nonsense. Beta has absolutely been disproven, that there's no relationship between the amount of movement of a stock price and its overall risk. It's just an academic thesis developed by Richard Fama back in 1968 on a paper that he wrote at the University of Chicago, which he himself has now said isn't true. Well, I mean, that's not really accurate. I mean, beta definitely is a thing that it, it's like a, a number that you can look up on Google that they offer for any given stock. You can look it up for indexes. I mean, beta is used a lot. So well, yeah. this idea that beta has been disproven and is gone is certainly not true. And obviously... Whoa, 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 what, whoa. I what, didn't say it was gone. It's continuing to be used by everybody. I totally agree. What's astonishing... Yeah, but, but here's the point. Beta is just a mathematical equation. So yeah. But no, it's, it's supposed to mean to something. You, then, well, yeah, it's supposed to mean something. But so it, what it means it doesn't. is that... It can tell you the volatility of a stock compared to the market, which maybe that's useful information to you. You're looking up to find the page, I know. I, I'm, I'm I looking know exactly, exactly. I know you're looking at me. And I don't remember up. that exact, I don't remember where that exact, but I remember that he says it and he talks about beta and I, I uh, maybe was a little sleepy when I read that part. Well, let me, let me tell you what the bottom line is, is, that everyone knows and yet the SEC still allows the use of beta. They're still using beta in CAPM. They're still using beta to determine your portfolio. It's used everywhere, and it's nonsense. And the reason okay, it's gonna nonsense... Find, I'm going to find it. Okay, well, I'm just telling you right now. I'm just saying just that me. the reason it's nonsense is because if beta is true, then low beta stocks cannot possibly outperform high beta stocks. That, In other words, risk and reward are related in an efficient market hypothesis. And if beta is indeed an, a, 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 a view of risk, then a riskier portfolio is what you must have in order to have a higher level of return. But they found that that's not true. Okay, that I found the page. It's 226 to 227. And 
Yes, you are exactly right. So what he says is that the part that was found to be not true is that beta, as in the volatility compared to the market, equals risk. That second part, the equals risk part, is the part that they found was not accurate because they, or I should say Thaler, took a certain group of stocks that he dubbed winners, which were stocks that had been moving up for a while and were generally being bought in the market. And then he had a group of stocks that he dubbed losers, which had been going down for a while and were generally being sold. And they followed those stocks for a few years and they conjectured that if Cap well, wait, wait, you, get, you, get, you got something you got to add in there that the winner stocks oh, yeah. had low betas. The winner no, they stocks just, they had just low betas. They just had the betas they had, right? No, the winner, but the winner stocks had low betas, and the loser stocks had high betas, and thus were risky according to the capital asset pricing model. That's the key thing here: is that because those stocks had dropped so much, they had high betas, and the winners, which were going up with the market had low betas. So the the model had to show. He actually showed, yeah, that's what they thought would be true, but actually it was the opposite. So the winners actually ended up being riskier than the losers. It's on 227 in that second paragraph there. And yeah. um, so he's, he's saying so, the efficient market yeah. hypothesis could be reconciled with our results if loser stocks had high, oh yeah, you're right, I had it backwards, <laughs> okay. If but I mean, honestly, like all this beta bloody stuff, I find it so mind-bending. No, 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 it's not mind-bending. It's easy. It's I, <laughs> I just read it backwards. If if the loser stocks had high betas, that would account for why they gave you such a good return if efficient market hypothesis were true, right? Okay, say that again. If loser stocks had high betas, so I'm trying to translate it into English. So if loser stocks, and these are stocks that have been going down for a while, for a couple of years, right. if they had had high betas, meaning that they were moving more than the market was moving, whether up or down, beta doesn't indicate up or down. Right. So they were falling more probably than the market as a whole because they were in the loser category. Right then that would mean they were riskier, right? right. That's the idea. And would, re and would predict a higher rate of return. And what Thaler conjectured was actually that it wouldn't really make much of a difference and that maybe even the loser stocks would do better than the winner stocks over time because he kind of thought, well, there'd probably be sort of a course correction at some point overall. Whereas the winner stocks had been going up for a while and he thought, well, those ones might at some point sort of level out. It was basically just common sensing the market a little bit. And uh, and he was right. So he found that the winners were actually riskier than the losers because they had a slightly higher beta. So according to the paradigm that beta e or higher beta equals risk, the winner so section of stocks, which should have been lower risk, were actually higher risk. Yeah. They were actually yeah. higher risk. The winner's beta averaged 1.37 and the loser's beta averaged 1.03. So the winners were actually riskier than the losers. And, right. and, and here's why that matters, right. because of the CAPM that you were talking about. Right. So CAPM, which I do not understand and cannot explain to you, but if you read the book, maybe you'll know it better than me. So CAPM somehow determines this like allocation of a portfolio by trying to balance it out from being more risky or less risky. 
Yeah, so your your robo-advisor model, which applies this same kind of logic to exchange-traded funds and indexes, would say, oh, well, the winners have a beta of 1.37, right? This group of stocks has a beta of 1.37, and therefore we're going to put that into your portfolio for people who are looking for a higher rate of return. We're going to put that pile in there because it's got a 1.37. And for those who are looking for a lower and safer portfolio, a lower re- are willing to accept a lower return for a safer portfolio, we're going to pile in the 1.03 group, which Taylor's calling the losers. So we'll put in the 1.03 into your low volatility, you know, low risk group. We're putting the 1.37 group into your high volatility, high risk group that's likely to do better. Well, your portfolio would have exactly the opposite results. The point is CAPM only looks at that volatility compared to the market to determine risk. Right. That's the point. And so So you end up with a portfolio that's doing... Where he disproves CAPM. That's the important takeaway is not that beta doesn't work. It's that if beta is your only indicator of risk, that's the part that doesn't work. Very good. And so your portfolio by a robo-advisor would automatically take the 1.37 beta ETFs, stick those into your portfolio for those of you who want more risk and an attempt to get a higher return. And if the market follows what this, you know, if, if you could extrapolate from this one piece of research, you're going to end up with a lower return as a result. So, and this is in fact what happened when they started studying Warren Buffett's portfolio and Charlie Munger's portfolio, is they discovered much to their consternation that the beta of the companies that Buffett and Munger were buying was far lower than the market beta and should have resulted in a far lower return and doesn't in any way account for the fact that they slaughtered the market with rates of return 2x greater than the market. So all of a sudden, this critical fact about capital asset pricing model just simply goes up in smoke and doesn't work. And yet, has anybody changed anything? No. That's exactly how they're pricing your portfolio. That's what robo-advisors do to get their quarter percent. And it's crazy. It doesn't result in the, in the results you're looking for, but yet the SEC sort of tacitly blesses it uh, as a way of doing the math, if you will. You know, there's a whole chapter towards the end of the book about football and the football draft and how... The uh, football team, the NFL football teams can trade draft picks and they can not only trade draft picks in a given year, but they can trade draft picks in future years. Let's, let, let's do teams- this. Let's let's come back to this in, in next week's podcast. I want to dive into that because I think that football thing is cool. I think it's super interesting. Let me finish my point And then, yes, okay. we will move on for next week here my point is a quick one i just i just it it triggered it when you said that uh that nothing has changed because it's a cool chapter we'll talk about the details so basically like this all this these trades happen it's all like this sort of arbitrage of draft picks and back and forth and uh and so thaler sort of moneyballed it basically and figured out a better way to use the stats for the NFL draft and went to three different football teams and told them about it. And I think they actually paid him to advise them about it. And then not a single one of those three teams actually put his advice into effect. And not a single one of those three teams changed anything about the way they did the draft. And just to tee up next week, one of those teams... It's not just the SEC, Dad. Exactly. One of those teams 
was the Washington Redskins. So we'll come back to that next week because this is so fascinating. I, I You got to read this book, everybody. It's Misbehaving by Richard Thaler. Um, phenomenal. It's called The Making of Behavioral Economics, Misbehaving. Read it because it's going to provide a foundation for you uh, to have as an investor where you can understand better why the markets do what they do. These 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 works that have been going on for 35 years are phenomenal. So cap him. Yeah, is I mean, I think it's I think it's interesting to, to read about why the markets work. But for me, it was much more interesting to think about the way I work as ah, an investor. Well done. Yeah, well done. Well, I suppose, I suppose what else is new after over 100 That's... episodes? You guys know, you know, I'm personally obsessed with my own investing style more than anything else. <laughs> I love that you, you, that you you're putting this out there because it's incredible. Uh, if we understand better how we function, how much better we can work as investors. And this is something that Buffett and Munger have stated many times is their edge in the market is that yeah that's a really good point that's true is that they do try to operate rationally and try to understand when they're not doing so so we'll, yeah. come, we'll come back on this in in much more detail next week um, more on misbehaving and nfl drafts until then Sounds time good. to go play thanks everybody bye see you hey thanks for listening to invested we hope you enjoyed this episode head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything, and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.